0: Morning. I, uh, I neglected to uh, mention the announcements that uh, uh, really the international party at BJ's is just to warm up the house for the New Hope Christmas party, which will be there the following evening. Uh, to remind you of the rules for this, you'll be getting an eNew Hope as well. But uh, this is an adults-only party. First of all, uh, if you bring children, you will be unceremoniously ejected, um, or at least they will. You can stay. What? The fact that they are children of yours, uh, of non-children age, is is fine. Yes, I hope they're there. They will be good. Um, so BJ's kids will be there, and we can find out all about uh, uh, the the various tech companies that are competing with one another to try to recruit uh, Lindsay and uh, Nathan soon enough. Um, but we also have every year a, a white elephant uh element of the party and the deal there is that you uh, bring one gift per household it has to be something you already own, you can't go out and buy something for this, it has to be something you already own it has to be wrapped uh, and uh, we will uh, go through the process of p- selecting those gifts and then uh, stealing them from one another so <clears throat> that's something to look forward to, we have sort of a temporary suspension of the thou shalt not steal commandment just for that evening uh, So here we are in chapter 50 of Isaiah, and we've been in the course of uh, Advent here looking through some prophecies from Isaiah in the second part of the uh, book of Isaiah. This part of Isaiah reflects a perspective of a nation in exile, as we remember, because uh, Rick taught us about that in the first week, I reminded you last week, the nation of Israel Having been placed in the land by God, having been given his Torah so that they could live well, having been guaranteed security from their enemies, health, prosperity, every blessing, the nation squandered that. The nation chose to turn away from God, chose not to follow him, and chose instead to go their own way. And as a result, the blessings that were going to be available to them were withdrawn, and the curses that were promised to them upon disobedience were executed. And so they were sent into exile. And even earlier in Isaiah, in, in this just remarkable and, and completely mind blowing move, God refers to, of all people, Cyrus, the king of Persia, as his servant, indeed, as his shepherd, as the one who is going to accomplish all that God pleases. Indirectly, Cyrus, the king of Persia, is going to be responsible for restoring the nation. Cyrus, of course, has no idea this is what God is doing with him. Cyrus would probably not want to cooperate if he did. God is not particularly interested in what Cyrus feels about the matter. God is going to accomplish his purposes through whomever he will, and he does. And so, the people, though in exile, have a legitimate question. So, does this mean, since we're here, that God is weaker than the other gods? Does this mean, since we have been exiled to Babylon, since we have been ejected from the land, does this mean that God is not able to protect his people, that God's not able to look after their security, to take care of their needs? And so this is what Yahweh says, well, all right, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? To which of my creditors did I sell you? The implication being that God, having been weakened, had to sell off his children into slavery. That he was so, as we discussed back in Torah, when a person got indebted to the place where they no longer could get anybody to lend them anything, they might have to sell themselves their whole family into slavery. Maybe they'd have to send their wife away because they couldn't maintain the support of a family. And the the implication of this question is somebody's saying, well, this must be what happened. God couldn't even take care of his people. God says, no, that's, that's not it at all. It's because of your sins you were sold, because of your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. This was a divorce for perfectly legitimate reasons. The children were not sold off because God needed the money. There's no creditor holding anything over God. The image here is one of people having suffered their the consequences, the legitimate, normal, logical consequences of their sin. Don't blame me, God says. It's not because of any weakness on my part that the nation is in exile. Indeed, when I came, God says, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? I, I was calling out to you, but you weren't responding. You, you really think my arm was too short to ransom you? You really think I lack the strength to rescue you? And you have to imagine that among the people, there were there were people in, in exile, among the, God's people in exile, who would have said, "Wow, well, maybe God isn't so strong after all, maybe he isn't the... Lord of the universe, maybe maybe there's somebody stronger than he is. God says, what, are you kidding? You remember the deal with the Red Sea? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. Who else can do that? I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water. They die of thirst. I clothe the sky with darkness. I make sackcloth its covering. This is sort of a digested version of the last four chapters of Job, if you remember that, where... Job and his friends have been having a philosophical disputation and then God just crashes in at the end and says, Really? (laughs) Who do you think you're dealing with? No, it's not because of God's weaknesses that the nation has gone into exile. It's not because God is incompetent. It's not because God is not sufficiently powerful or wise is because the people have been faithless. The people have been disobedient. And as a result, they find themselves in the place that they're at. And they have nobody to blame for that but themselves. And so then in verse 4, we have a change in the voice of the speaker. The Lord Yahweh has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. Lord Yahweh has opened my ears, and I haven't been rebellious. I haven't drawn back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked out the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. This is the voice of the suffering servant who, whom we hear in Isaiah at several places. The suffering servant that we understand to be Jesus, thank you. I had to teach the kids about that last week. I think you guys have kind of caught on to this by now. When in doubt, the answer is Jesus. But yeah, Isaiah would have thought of this as the suffering servant. He may not have realized this was going to be the suffering Messiah. Isaiah himself may have been quite surprised when God worked out what he did through Jesus. He may have been stunned to learn that that Jesus is the one he was talking about. We don't know. Maybe we can ask him. But the Lord Yahweh has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one who is being taught. Lord Yahweh has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I haven't drawn back, says the suffering servant. But rather he offered his back to those who beat him. His cheeks to those that pulled out his beard, didn't hide his face. From shame and spitting. And this kind of beating, this kind of punishment, this kind of torture, this humiliation is the sort of thing that would be poured out on somebody. Some of these punishments are in fact prescribed in Torah for people who are disobedient. Others are simply means of rank humiliation and bullying But this is the voice of one who is suffering what somebody suffers when he's being utterly humiliated, utterly abused, utterly ridiculed, and made to be an object of scorn, object of derision. But because the Lord Yahweh helps me, he says... Actually, I won't be disgraced at all. This is somebody who's placed in the most disgraceful position, but he says, because the Lord Yahweh helps me, I actually won't be disgraced. So therefore, I've set my face like flint. I know I'm not going to be put to shame because he who vindicates me is near. And so if he who vindicates me is near, who who on earth is going to bring charges against me? Really, I mean, let, let me, you know, let me, let me face my accuser. Bring him up here. Let him confront me. See, it's it's Lord Yahweh who helps me. And if Lord Yahweh helps me, who is gonna condemn me? No. They're all gonna wear out like a garment. And the moths will eat them up. And as I'm reading this, I just I can't help but notice the resonances between this. In Romans 8, listen to this, what Paul says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And this language is language of vindication. This is language that comes both from the courtroom and from the social setting. And it comes from the throne room. It's all-encompassing. What then? Paul says, Shall we say in response to this, if God's for us, who can be against us? Right, does this sound familiar at all? He who vindicates me is near, who then will bring charges against me? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? God's the one who justifies, who condemns. Christ Jesus, who died. And more than that, who didn't just die, who was raised to life. He is at the right hand of God. He is also interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it's written. For your sake, we face death all day long. We're, We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, he says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The vindication that Jesus, the suffering servant, knew when he was resurrected by the mighty power of God from the dead, which we talked about just just a month or so ago, that vindication that he knew is also our vindication. It is only with him, Paul says, that these things happen. Only with him and through him and in him. See, as Isaiah goes on to say, there's there's another way of going about dealing with this problem, right? I mean, you can... Respond to the one that God has sent to save you out of your troubles. Or, you try to do it your own way. Who among you fears Yahweh, verse 10, and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Or, Now all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go and walk in the light of those fires. The torches you set ablaze. See how that works for you. But this is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. We don't know if those fires, those torches reflect some sort of a pagan religious practice or it's simply a, a vivid image of choosing to make your own light rather than living in the light of the one true God. But there's a choice, isn't there? You can fear Yahweh, obey the word of His servant, trust in the name of Yahweh, and rely on God. Or you can try to do it yourself. And Paul talks about this in Romans 8 as well, the section before that that I just read. He says, starting in verse 18, I consider, Paul says, that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The whole creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the free, glorious freedom of the children of God. And we know, Paul says, the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Really, I mean, who hopes for what he already has? That doesn't make any sense, does it? There's a line from David Wilcox's song. He says, but I see if you gave me a vision, would I never have reason to use my faith? But if we hope for what we don't have, Paul says, that means we wait for it patiently. And in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Sometimes we don't even know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. And the one who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And I think what he's talking about here is the same kind of thing we find in Isaiah. There's a, a reality of following God that involves not knowing what He's doing all the time, right? It involves hoping in what we don't see. That involves anticipating what one day will be in full, and now we only see the faintest glimmer of it, in part What Isaiah is talking about is fearing Yahweh, obeying the word of his servant, trusting the name of Yahweh, relying on his God. And what Paul assures us is that we're not just fumbling around in the dark when we do that, but that the Spirit himself is within us groaning. As we wait eagerly for our adoption and as His children for the redemption of our bodies, He helps us in our weakness. The Spirit, even as we don't know what we ought to pray for, as we don't know how to pray, the Spirit Himself is praying for us with inexpressible groans. Because the one who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. When we face uncertainty, when we face danger, it's always tempting to fire up our own torch, isn't it? To figure out some way that we can be sure we know what's going to happen next. That we can light our own path. That that path, that way of dealing with that, Isaiah says, is the way that leads to destruction. If God knows, then we can trust God. And as we obey Him, as we follow Him, knowing that He knows the path we ought to go down, then we can do that with humility. We can do that with confidence. We can do that with trust. We can find security in ourselves or we can find security in God. It's the choice that's always before us, isn't it? And Paul starts out chapter 8 of Romans by reminding us, just as the suffering servant would say, that there is, no, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. For what Torah was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the flesh, God himself did by sending his own son in the likeness, of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of Torah might be fully met in us. In us. Who don't live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Mind of fleshly man is death but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace the mindset on the flesh is hostile to god it doesn't submit to god's law it can't do so obviously Those controlled by the flesh can't please god but you paul says you you're not controlled by the flesh you're controlled by the spirit if the spirit of god lives in you You may not even know that. You may not even feel like it. You may not experience it, but it's going on, Paul says. If anybody doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ, but if Christ is in you, your body's dead because of sin, but your spirit's alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, not to the sinful nature, to live according to it, not to the flesh. Because if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. You You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received the spirit of adoption, sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we might also share in His glory. The sufferings of the suffering servant are not things that His people can escape. The way to know the vindication that comes from being God's servant is to enter with God's servant into his suffering. Jesus said, whoever would follow me must take up his cross. We don't get the bennies of being God's people without being willing to enter into the sufferings of his son, Jesus Christ. What God calls us to is a full identification with him not only in the glory stuff, not only in the vindication, not only in the victory, but also in what the world sees as defeat. He calls to us with the servant to not be rebellious to God, not to draw back from whatever challenges God is putting before us. Maybe you're in a situation where you see maybe God is calling you to something that you can't imagine pulling off on your own maybe there is a path of suffering a veil of tears that you see coming up you can try to do this on your own Or you can say with a suffering servant, I have not been rebellious. I have not drawn back. And because the Lord Yahweh helps me, I won't be disgraced. I'm going to set my face like flint. I'm going to have a stiff upper lip. I'm going to get through this. Knowing that I will not be put to shame. Why? Not because I'm going to do a great job of enduring whatever it is God has for me, but because the one who vindicates me is near. He is in fact living within me. He's comforting me. He's challenging me. He's instructing me. He's interceding for me. He is praying for me when I can't. It is the Sovereign Lord, the Lord Yahweh, who helps me. And if that's true, who's going to condemn us? Really, everything that comes up against us, the world, the flesh, the devil, all ultimately are the ones who face real humiliation. It's God's people who are vindicated. It doesn't happen the way we might think it ought to happen. It happens through Suffering and it happens through pain, and it happens through what seems like humiliation. But the promise here is that it happens. As we remember from the very beginning of Romans, regarding the son, as to his human nature was a descendant of David, but who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call those from among the Gentiles to the obedience of faith. We also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. indication we will know one day will not be because of what we figured out or the little torches that we lit It will be because of the blazing glory of our lord jesus christ who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of god by his resurrection from the dead he is jesus christ our lord let's pray Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm that you are worthy. We affirm that you are the vindicated suffering servant. And even in this season where we think of you suffering, the indignity of being born of a human mother, the squalid darkness and stench of a makeshift barn. We know that that was in some ways a foreshadowing of the indignity you would suffer dying at the hands of human beings. And the squalor and stench of a Roman cross. Or we know that you did not hide your face from shame, from spitting. We know that you gave your back to those that whipped it. That you turned your cheek to those that hold out your beard. We know that the Lord laid upon you the iniquity of us all. We also know that by your stripes we are healed. And that by your sacrifice for us, you make it possible for us to enter into that vindication that glorification that you knew and know now. Or give us the grace to suffer what you call us to suffer. Sustain us in that. Walk with us. Give us the strength that we can't muster on our own. enable us to trust you as we do so. We ask this in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.